Hello and welcome to episode five of the Low Left podcast. So today we're we're changing format up a little bit uh, in that we're doing sort of a, an informal interview conversation uh, dialogue, if you will, with my longtime best friend uh, Ryan Hackman, who lives in the same apartment as me mm-hmm. and often feeds the same cat that I do. So uh, I'm going to um, turn the microphone over to Ryan for a second so he can introduce himself to listeners. So, good to be here. Not a lot. Not to really introduce. No fancy initials after my name. Just always found the Russians kind of fascinating. A while ago, started reading up on the wars in Georgia, Ukraine, and uh, just really been uh, tracking the, the news for a long time. Just kind of generally horrified by the way the wars evolved over there and just the a lot of the poor thinking on conflict in Ukraine over here. And so part part of all of that is you, you've actually read pretty extensively about a lot of these topics going back for quite some time. You're, you've lent me the, the, the Guns of August, which was a fascinating read. Uh, it took me much longer to get through than probably should have, but the shame pile is tall. Uh, um, I guess we'll, we'll kind of start with, with some of that. So in, in some of the reading that you've done, why don't we have, like, explain for a moment uh, kind of like the starting point for where you think a lot of this bad thinking comes from. Is it is it chronological? Is it uh, that people misdiagnose the start of the war? Or what, what do you think the starting point is for, like, how people get this so very wrong? Uh, yeah, I think actually that's the best possible place to start, just the actual beginning of the war. Um, it's all too common for people to speak of the war as though it began on February 24th, when in reality it began eight years ago. There aren't enough people actually make that point. Um, part of it's probably just ease of expression. Like, it's just easier to speak of the war that began on February 24th as opposed to, like, a new phase of the war or, you know, like, the, like a... Like a stepped up Russian invasion on the 24th. Like there, like almost every way you want to refer to it in a more technically correct manner is a little more cumbersome, but it's nonetheless too easy to forget that like the war didn't start months ago, it started eight years ago. And that's something that I only hear Ukrainians say most of the time. But I believe like the Ukrainian death toll prior to the 24th was tallied at something like 14,000. Good God. So like the, the the war is much older than people typically think. Like people started paying attention four months ago, but the time to start paying attention was like eight years ago. And I think that's I think that's correct, uh, and I, I also think that it's it's worth it's worth taking the time to get those like small, seemingly pedantic details right, because if we don't have precision in, in what we're talking about, it can lead us to some really wrong-headed conclusions, which I think is what's on display currently. We have a lot of uh, folks that seem to be convinced the war began uh, abruptly a few months ago, and there seems to be this pervasive air that it will also end somewhat in the near future, some way. Like, one way or another, there's some perception that either there's going to be a negotiated settlement uh, or that um, optimism reigns, I guess, and there's still some quarters that really genuinely think that the Ukrainians are going to just magically turn this thing around and that Vladimir Putin is going to be deposed, and it's it's going to be sunshine and rainbows. I think that 
the inability to rec uh, reconcile the fact that this has been going on for nearly a decade. And even with the the occupation of uh, Crimea and the uh, breakaway air quotes republics in, in the Donbass region, I mean, those were elements of like a longer Russian campaign that, that predated even like overt action before that, that there were responses to both pro-Russian and pro-Western uh, forces within Ukraine that sort of led to that being a crescendo at the moment. And it's, it's escalated well beyond that by now. So I guess to that point, um, talking about like wrongheaded conclusions that are being drawn, uh, some of the ones that, that I think are the, the, the wrongest, and I, I suspect we're probably going to just high-five each other over how much winners we are in agreeing about this, mm. uh, that, that I think that the, the worst uh, analysis comes from people that are often the, the best respected in sort of the, the geopolitical field, in that they believe that some sort of negotiated settlement between the two uh, parties can be reached and that there will be a lasting um, conclusion that air quotes ends the war. Now, as I've talked about in previous um, blog entries here, like the idea of ending wars, I'm using scare quotes for all listeners there, is just utterly wrong-headed folly. The objective is you need to be to, to, to win them uh, or otherwise uh, obtain a political settlement which is favorable to your side and disadvantageous to the other. Because the reason wars take place in the first place is because there's a political objective that is happening in a country outside of your own, and you're attempting to assert political will over another force through the, the, the force of arms. And, and the idea that we can play referee to the world and have uh, some very well-funded rich person from the United States negotiate some sort of stable settlement between Russia and Ukraine, I think is the, the ultimate manifestation of how like badly thought out this, this whole situation has been. Actually, before we dive into that, I, something we should circle back to as concerns, like the origin of this thing, like, I think something you've spoken of that's worth highlighting there, there is this idea that there's far too much currency in the West, that somehow this is the fault of the West. This is a great point. Um, so we should, I think, quite, this is something that I've encountered in a few different writers, a few different a lot of members of the chattering classes seem to take uh, the view that uh, this is nothing but a response to Western expansionism. Um, that this is something we that we like. This is because we've antagonized the Russians. We that this is the result of NATO expansion, uh, all that sort of thing. Um, I I'm actually more skeptical than most probably of NATO expansion for a variety of practical and philosophical reasons. Um, but that said, like, even the, the point a lot of these people miss, I think, is that even if somehow this were the result of, this were a response to Western expansionism, like NATO, expansion of NATO eastward, like, that, like, the, the Russian response is completely misdirected, like, it's, like, it's not the fault of Ukrainians. Like they, they don't deserve to have their people killed, their borders violated, their cities destroyed because of some perceived error on the part of Western powers. And like I don't that inability to properly assign assign agency and blame is a serious problem I've encountered myself. And I know you. Yes. You should probably speak for a minute on the you articulated similar um, views that I guess have taken a hold. Of the political right here in the states, like they have a 
somewhat different but related viewpoint, as I recall. Yeah. It, so the one of the things that, that, that I find routinely frustrating to, to that point is the idea that the, the United States uh, can only be a force for, for global damage has historically been a talking point of the, the political left in the United States. Like both, both of us were uh, in college in the early 2000s and the, the protests on campus and like the no to intervention, everything. This, this is, at least in our lifetimes, and if you go back far enough in the historical record, there's always been a streak of isolationism and population, pop, uh, populism uh, on, on the political right. But in the, the current historical moment, for our lifetimes, this has been a perspective of, of the American left. And seeing that that same basic sort of wrong-headed idea that everything we do turns to crap hmm. infect the political right really leaves people with, with our sympathies, I think, kind of homeless in, in a lot of respects. So the, the strange idea that uh, we can stick our head in the sands and ignore everything and it's all going to work out just fine, I, I think is, is one of the areas where I diverge from uh, the more libertarian wing of, of, of the, the political right. Because I just don't think it's true. I, I think that if you look at the historical record for countries that the United States has engaged with uh, and, and maintained a presence in and traded with, uh, et cetera, I, I think the Germans are doing pretty good these days. I, I think the Japanese are doing all right. I think the South Koreans are doing pretty good. And I, I, I find it challenging to, to support the assessment that the United States has been a global force for, for bad outcomes. Like I I don't understand like what historical record people are looking at, but uh, overall human flourishing has increased to a degree that is unknown in all of recorded history as a result of the, the, the effects of uh, global trade and Pax Americana. And seeing that it's now both of the, the main somewhat arbitrary political tribes in the United States have picked up on the same sorts of talking points and, and have a shared grudging consensus with each other about everything is America's fault, not only I think is just factually untrue, but I think it speaks to a, a very entitled degree of like cultural narcissism that we cannot ascribe agency to the actions of anybody outside of what's happening in our own borders. Uh, and, and the idea that Vladimir Putin doesn't do what Vladimir Putin wants, he does what is a response to things that happen in Brussels or Washington DC. I, I think that's, that's, that's lunatic fringe stuff because there are a lot of people in the world. Actually, as it turns out, the majority of people on earth do not live in the United States. Uh, and they all have their own independent goals and objectives, cultural norms, longstanding grievances, uh, some authentic and some, um, I think less noble. Uh, and I think Vladimir Putin is, is, playing the hand that he's dealt. And I'm, I'm not saying this to sympathize with the man. I think that he's a totalitarian dictator. I, I think that that is objectionable. But it, the idea that he's only responding to things that are happening in the West, I think badly misreads the, the overall historical Russian character. Uh, I think that it does a complete uh, disservice to the, the reality on the ground. And I think it also uh, speaks very poorly of our decreasing sort of cultural ability in the United States to take account of the fact that the, the bedrock foundational principles that, that gave rise to the American Republic are predicated on the idea that, that people like the Ukrainians have a, the, the opportunity for self-government, that the individual person everywhere should have uh, the ability to uh, determine how he or she wants to live through consent of the governed and, and democratic institutions. And uh, the, the fact that there are so many on the political right that are sometimes even overtly saying 
like Vladimir Putin should have like a sphere of influence in which he gets to determine what his neighbors do. It's like a, a complete repudiation of, of everything that the, the mainstream of like conservative ph philosophical thought has established for centuries at this point. Like somewhere, you know, John Locke is rolling over in his grave. Uh, and the idea that, that this has started to insinuate itself into the way that everybody views these problems, uh, I think is a, a serious problem um, for, for us as a, as a country, but particularly given our, our historical vantage on the global stage as being like the preeminent global power, the ability to project force anywhere within 24 hours. If we wind up an impotent superpower, or I think impotent is the wrong word. Like if we wanted to badly enough, we could, we could do all sorts of incredible things militarily. The trick is we just don't really want to. Yeah, no, that, that is another problem with um, flagging up um, something that I thought about a fair bit. Um, the, I guess, finish off the idea of um, the, some of the root causes of all this, though, I think it's worth highlighting our, what strikes me as our consistent failure to understand Russia and her people. Yes. Um, can't claim any like deep insight into them, just like over the course of just reading about their history, like reading or watching news, like reading about recent events, like just it, it seems very apparent that like we just really don't understand them very well. Something I've been keen to try to uh, correct in my own reading. Just been really curious to always curious to I've been always been curious to just find what insights they can glean like into like how they see the world, like who they are, like so they're they are different. Like, so I think that's something we forget. Like, and that's it's important to know. There's no value judgment assigned to that. They're just they simply are just different. Have a different history, different worldview. Like, they're just they come from a very different place from us. Like, they're um, I often liken them to a mirror. You liken them to the uncanny valley. Like, yeah. however you want to think of it. Um, either metaphor works. Like, they're. They're very similar to us in some ways, and others are very, very different. And like, I, I think we forget that. I think we often misunderstand them. And I think that I don't know. I, I suspect like a lot of our responses would be better if we just had a better grasp on who they are. No, I think that's that's a very good point. And it, it it's interesting here. Here um, I I flirt with concepts that are much more prevalent on uh, the American political left, but like the idea of like cultural competence. Uh, which I, I think that like taken on its own merits is actually extremely important. And I think a lot of the, the problems we've gotten ourselves into uh, Iraq in 2003, for example, like the idea that, well, they'll uh, rise up and, and join us in the celebration of democracy. And well, that didn't work out that great. We still have thousands of troops in Iraq. Uh, and in spite of having left at one point and then having to go back in, I think we're doing the same thing with Russia where we just foundationally don't have enough, you know, curiosity, maybe, or uh, maybe we're just hubristic enough to believe that everyone really is like us. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that that sort of starting point of like everyone basically acts the way that we do, everyone shares the same value sets and motivations that we do, leads us to believe some some just provably incorrect things about the way that people act on the world stage. Russia, I think, is a great example of this. Like the the, the Russian cultural history is one that is largely defined by having been invaded by 
people like the Mongols and uh, at one point Napoleon. And in the 1940s, we had the, the German army, like, you know, besiege Stalingrad. And, and it is a, a psychopathology uh, of Russian culture that like they are deeply concerned with that. And so their response to so-called Western expansionism is comprehensible even if it doesn't justify their actions. But this is something that is like sorely lacking. Like that, that comprehension just doesn't exist in a lot of elite circles that spend their time with the, the chattering classes and uh, other people in polite elite culture talking about this issue. There's this, I think, right-headed uh, knee-jerk response that like what Vladimir Putin is doing is wrong uh, and that what Vladimir Putin is doing is evil and that's kind of the end of it. Like that's, that, that's where the train stops. And I think that that's directionally correct, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't evaluate the reality on the ground. It doesn't look for corrective actions. It doesn't seriously countenance consequences of failure. Uh, I think that it, it misapplies Western values to understand Eastern sentiments. I, I think there's a lot of it that is noble and, and admirable and like seeing uh, people who otherwise took very little interest in foreign affairs be able to look squarely in the face of like a very clear act of uh, imperialist aggression by a hostile power and say, this is wrong. I think that's been edifying great. But what's been really frustrating is it falls so far short of actually committing to do anything uh, useful. Yeah, that actually, I think, segues nicely into one of the persistent problems in our thinking like because my my own perception at least is because we don't really have a good beat on who the russians are like how particularly i mean it's important to draw a distinction for one between just russian citizens and their government that's um, a good point but i think we because we seem down to determine to fundamentally misunderstand who Vladimir Putin is like who like what their government is like what it wants like we seem convinced that we can talk our way out of it or we can or we can bribe our way out of it or bribe our way out of it yes exactly like we're 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 convinced that if we just talk long enough like we can somehow fix it or we just spend enough money or just apply the forces of economics just so we can somehow work or like find a way out of this thing without actually committing to doing anything and i think that's something that Something you've spoken of repeatedly, like I think is right, or like we've kind of lost our ability to understand that economics, diplomacy, warfare, culture, like all our arrows in the same quiver. Like we're just convinced that like we can use diplomacy and nothing else to solve the problem. And I don't think that's the case realistically. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair point. One of the one of the constant themes I try to talk about in my my writing here, that quiver is called strategy. And the objective of strategy is to assert national or, or cultural uh, dominance to accomplish specific objectives. And, and diplomacy is a tool. Diplomacy is a tactic. It's not a strategy. Hmm. And, and we've, we have so far removed ourselves from anything remotely resembling uh, strategic competence that the, the people in position, they don't even have the context. They don't even understand 
like that, that what they're doing is counterproductive. That they're, that we have been so well off for so long that I think we've lost sight of the fact that we need to approach the world as it really is and behave seriously. And part of behaving seriously is understanding that other people have mutually exclusive objectives that will run directly counter to ours. In this case, Russia's objectives are directly counter to ours. And even the, the operational goals that he set out, and it's, again, contextually, strategy is like nation-defining operations for how to accomplish like larger objectives during a war. Uh, then we have tactical and individual below that. But the, the operational objectives that Vladimir Putin has clearly defined are directly at odds with the furtherance of Western liberal society. Like setting forth like we're going to conquer the Donbass region in Ukraine is basically like a, a clear way of establishing I want to dominate the energy market for the West in that he'll, he'll seize control of a large number of nuclear power plants, which Europe is in the process of shutting down, which is, yeah, you're right to laugh at that. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, the French it, are interested in building nuclear power plants. The, the, French still, the French still retain some degree of seriousness in this regard. In uh, a lot of the other countries that haven't been proactive in maintaining that degree of seriousness will not have the ability to rebuild new ones because the raw materials, such as the uranium, that are required to make nuclear power plants come primarily from Kazakhstan, which has Russia in between it and Western Europe. And Russia is not likely to allow Kazakhstan, which is basically a satellite state, to sell raw materials that will undermine Russia's geostrategic aims of energy dominance without extorting political concessions from Western European countries. And if we decide we're going to get Kazakhstan out, the number two supplier for uranium in the world is Russia. Mm -hmm. So like, if they sit on a bunch of nuclear power plants, which Western Europe doesn't have the ready ability to replenish... Uh, he also sits on top of enormous stockpiles of natural resources, such as oil and gas, which, I mean, Russia is basically a gigantic gas station these days anyway, but he's turning record profits off of the sale of petroleum-based energy to India and Hungary and China, yeah. all, like the elephant in the room there, China, um, and by giving him more veto authority over global energy markets, like there, there's there's nothing in that that says like yes this is good for the United States and now or allies in our way of life this is giving more power and authority over a totalitarian despot who does not want Western style liberal democracy who rejects it outright who who has no value for this at one point Vladimir Putin said something along the lines of like the 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 Soviet Union's collapse at the end of the Cold War is one of the greatest greatest tragedies in history. Like this, this is this is not the sort of uh, hegemon that we want to have any sort of veto authority over what happens within Western culture. Yeah, um, I mean, I think people actually make too much of that quote. Like, it's it is worth remembering that was a Titanic upset for a lot of people. Fair, I mean, like it, fair. It, I don't know that I, I'm not familiar with the context in which he said it. Like, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. So I certainly don't know what's going on inside his head. Um, like it, I mean that's that's a whole different can of worms to open, really. Um, I mean it it is worth remembering that resulted in an overnight the displacement of something like I think twenty five million Russians who found themselves abruptly living in another country. 
Um, it's probably one of the largest displacements of people in history, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and what followed the collapse of the Soviet Union was pretty bad for, I think, about a decade. I, mean, I know their economy fell apart. I think the state like largely lost coherency after that. Like it, it was like a tectonic upset for roughly 300 million people, whatever the population of the Soviet Union was at that time. Um, like that, that quote's been brought up quite a lot. Um, I think that's probably a, another conversation on its own, really. Fair, fair. Um, it's worth lingering on the point of, of sanctions, though. Oh. That, I think that, like, going, like, say, like, pivoting from causes to some of the more current wrong-headed thinking, like, among the tender-headed, that, I think, looms particularly large. Like, as far often discussed, like, sanctions are... I mean, I think they have the triple distinction of being like cowardly, ineffective, and indiscriminate. Um, I just read a, an article from, it was reported by Reuters that so far the uh, ruble is the best performing currency of the year. Um, I, I'm not an economist, I don't know what, I'm not familiar with the metrics they use, but according to folks who understand such things better than I do anyway, like the ruble is actually performing very, very well. Um, energy costs are gone through the roof, unsurprisingly, so Russia's still turning a tiny profit over that. Um, and, like, they... It's... They also, I mean, just more broadly, I think sanctions are just... They're just wrong-headed. Like, they've, to my knowledge, never really accomplished their intended goal. They didn't prevent Iraqis from killing Kurds in droves. <laughs> prevented like the North Koreans from pursuing their nuclear ambitions like they as concerns I'm straying outside of my wheelhouse in those instances but like just as concerns the current conflict like I would challenge you to name for me the sanctions package that returned the Crimea to Ukrainian control because it doesn't exist like sanctions have not accomplished anything like they're a relatively easy way to look like you're doing something without actually putting any skin in the game and they, not only are they ineffective, but they hurt the wrong people, like impoverishing, like a grocer, Nova Sibirsk, or a teacher in Irkutsk, like isn't going to solve anything. Like that's, you're hurting the wrong people. You're doing to the Russian economy what they're doing to Ukrainian cities right now. Like I struggle to believe that billionaire oligarchs will really go hungry, like <laughs> just because of the latest round of Western sanctions against the country. So you, I mean, we're, we have like sextupled down on this ridiculous strategy of ours, like convinced that if we just sanction them hard enough, it will work. But like, it hasn't worked yet. I, at best, you're winning a future conflict. Um, it seems doing nothing to save Ukrainian lives on the ground today. And you're hurting individual Russian citizens who have done nothing wrong. Like their only crime is being born in, time and place where like autocracy is apparently on the march again. No, I think that's, that's correct. I, I think I would go one step further and say, this is probably counterproductive that the, the Russian state narrative has been that all of your woes are because of a decadent imperialist West, hmm. that it is trying to make your life worse. And lo and behold, we are making their lives worse. Like it, it just, it happens to be the case that we're, we're playing a very easy hand, very poorly by handing Vladimir Putin an enormous propaganda victory because like the, for the average regular 
personally for the teacher or the, the grocery store owner that you mentioned, like it, it's very easily provable. Like when all of a sudden, like the basic goods that you've been purchasing, consumer electronics, for example, like if you want to go buy a set of Apple AirPods and all of a sudden, like you have to get them on the black market at six tuple price. Uh, and it's because the United States and all of its uh, rich friends decided that you, you weren't cool enough anymore. Like you are more likely to believe what Vladimir Putin has to say because you have seen it affect you in person. Uh, and so I, I, I think I would add a fourth category to your trifecta of failure here, like cowardly, uh, ineffective, um, indiscriminate. indiscriminate, and also counterproductive. I, I would say they're probably counterproductive at least as often as, as not. Uh, and it, it, I, I think your other point is, is well taken. Like I, I, I defy you show me the instance in which this has worked. I like the North Koreans have nuclear weapons. Now the Iranians probably will, uh, if they don't already and brief tangent on just the complete insanity of our, our, our lack of seriousness on the global stage. We're also relying on the Russians as, uh, negotiation partners in, discussing things with Iran. That's, that's barking lunacy. Like on the one hand, we're saying these are the worst people in the world and no one should do any trade with them. Also, by the way, we really need them to act as proxies for the West in negotiating with Iran to not split the ad. It's, it doesn't, that's totally incoherent. Uh, but as you point out, like Saddam Hussein was, was flying airstrikes with rotary wing air, aircraft to, uh, to massacre Kurds, like during the midst of a no fly zone, like with an act, like a, a near literal knife to his throat and, and massive international sanctions. And it didn't stop him from doing that. Uh, like it in recent history, I don't know of a single instance in which economic sanctions have accomplished it. This is a, a tool that is only useful against countries with similar values that play by the same set of rules. And we foundationally going back to, what we talked about earlier, like we foundationally misunderstand the Russian character by thinking that this is the sort of thing that really moves them. And because they, they do not operate within a free market. They do not have the same sort of input output uh, incentives that we do when their, their state is run by, again, a single autocrat and the other centers of power are the oligarchs who are effectively um, state ignored, if not sanctioned uh, cartel bosses. <sighs> These are not the sort of people that are going to be particularly uh, affected by like what happens in the NASDAQ or anything. These are folks that will graft uh, and, and grift and extort their way to some sort of uh, settlement. And they, they don't even have to that hard. Like, as you point out, the ruble is actually doing like shockingly well. Like, yeah, we, we punched in the jaw like for a couple of months back, back, uh, back in February, but now all of a sudden it's like, mm, actually that didn't, that didn't take in the long run. Uh, and they are basically printing money hand over fist off the sale of, of petroleum based energy. And what, what, what's particularly galling is like going back to our, our inability to understand um, and our lack of seriousness. I, I think that one of the things that we are willfully ignorant about is that we're able to disguise the fact that on the one hand, we're saying like, no, no, we, we're not going to buy Russian oil and gas anymore. We're done with that. And we're going to tell all of our friends not to do it too. And then we turn around, we buy incredible amounts of it from countries such as uh, Latvia or uh, India. And the so-called Latvian blend is a euphemism now for the fact that Latvia still takes in like 50% of its natural gas and oil from the Russians, dilutes it with oil from the North Sea, and says like, oh, look at that. Now it's Latvian oil. Now it's Latvian gas. Same thing with, with India. 
We are, we are laundering the things that we are claiming that nobody else should purchase by simply allowing them to pass through middlemen who in turn further enrich the Russians. So it's like, we're not particularly serious about it. And the Russians know it. Yeah. No, that it's also like the sort of expanding, like the expanding on that a bit, like the, um, I mean, the, just the zooming out a little bit from all that, like just trying to win the war, like economically, like just spending our way to victory is, I mean, I'm not convinced we're actually committed to winning it, I think. Like the way we're approaching it, like as a practical matter, we seem committed to just helping Ukrainians not lose, which is a problem. It's like, not the same thing, exactly. Um, but they're just like the idea that we can just somehow spend our way out of it is, uh, as far as I know, just simply unsustainable. Like for one thing, like there's this bizarre mirage of unity behind Ukraine that just, I think doesn't hold up. The world is nowhere near as united behind them as people here would want you to, would have you believe. Because um, there are a lot of people who, I mean, as I understand it, like uh, African nations are generally more sympathetic to Russian worldview. They also have, I mean, they don't have the luxury of being worried about it for one. Like, they, they have their own problems. Like, they, teach a professor of mine a long time ago once said that activism was a luxury of the affluent. And in a sense, it's Correct. Like there are a lot of countries in the world that have their own problems to sort out. Like they don't have the luxury of being worried about a war in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, my understanding is that the information war, Russia is generally winning in Africa. Like even even among the European Union, like the EU is nowhere near as united as they would have you think either. Like a lot of them are still importing Russian oil and natural gas because they need it. They've gotten used to it. They can't just like pivot away from it, like turn on a dime and just stop. Um, and some people are just, they just have fundamentally different relations with Russia. Like Hungary comes to mind, of course, like they're, they are not really committed to taking the same stand that the rest of the EU is because they have their own national interests to look after. Um, like they, so this, that's, there are a lot of tangents there, like the, the um, the point is that, like, the, this idea of, like, Western unity probably isn't going to, it's probably not sustainable in the long term, and pivoting from the ideological to, like, just the economic, and just the, the, the industrial, like, we, as far as I know, simply can't sustain what we're doing, like, at the moment, like, weeks ago, like, there were, there were reports that a lot of our European allies had already exhausted their stores of anti-armor and anti-aircraft missiles, like, we are shipping them to Ukraine at a much greater rate than that at which we can produce them currently. Like, we, I mean, I know there are efforts underway to increase production dramatically, but it's a long lead time for it. Like, we, like, we are going to start running out of things. Like, it, it makes far more sense to commit to, like, winning quickly and decisively than to just sort of keep spending money until... I don't know, like, Ukrainians don't lose long enough. No, I think those are all great points. A couple couple things to just tie a bow on. Um, luxury ideals, yeah. Like, activism is, it, it's a luxury thing. And if you are currently in Africa and you're looking at a 
genuine actual famine. Uh, and that, ha having read uh, some of Peter Zayan's, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing his last, Zayan? Zayan? Uh, I, I find his work compelling. Uh, I think that his analysis of well, like the the hard numbers and the data and like all that is very very well well thought out and 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 compelling. And he points out that like there are going to be enormous food shortages that we in the United States again going back to sort of hegemonic narcissism here we are not going to appreciate the severity of. And if you are in I don't know pick an African country. Ethiopia, Ethiopia. Sudan. Sudan. Let's pick Sudan because that one rolls off the tongue well. Um, if you're in Sudan and you're staring down the barrel of having hundreds of thousands of people starve to death and Russia is the only game in town for selling grain, uh, but they want some political concessions, such as don't get involved with Ukraine, like, okay, yep, sign me up. Like, it, 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 this is just what's going to happen. And, and our inability to process that, I think it, it, it just galls me. It regularly galls me. Um, to your other point about, like, we're just going to start running out of things. Like, we are already at the beginning of an inflationary cyclone in which we spent gobs of cash in the United States that we had to basically put on our national credit card, which is already beyond maxed. And this has measurably made everyone's quality of life worse. Uh, I don't, I don't know that anyone of good faith would say that this is, this is better. And it, there was a brief, brief moment in which, uh, it was mentioned like, well, if it means spending an extra 10 cents a gallon on gas, uh, to stick it to the Russians, like cool. But that, I understand that the principled stand right there, but like, this is a lot bigger than that. This is, we cannot continue to manufacture javelins and, and give them away for free. On a long enough timeline, that doesn't work. And if you if you really dive into the nuts and bolts of like how the Soviet Union came apart, it spent itself to death. the The Reagan economy was just so much more robust and so much bigger and so much more diverse and so much stronger than the Soviet economy that we were able to get them to spend themselves to death trying to fight the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And like it, it's worth thinking about that for a while. Canada no longer has any arms to spare. They, they've run out. Their, their, their cupboards are empty. And I know Canada relies on the United States as their primary means of defense. So it's like, that's, they're not exactly the, the strongest member state in NATO. Not just it, it, it's, not, it's not just the Canadians. Uh, it, it's everyone. And it's because the United States has subsidized the defense of the Western world for decades now all of a sudden, the other members of NATO are staring at their, their arsenals, realizing that they don't have the manufacturing capacity to be able to start churning out weapons at a fast enough rate to keep up with demand. I mean, Ukraine is losing between one and 200 people a day. Like just, yeah, just in the military. These are just armed service members that are, and probably, I think they're probably counting the territorial defense people too, which are kind of an organized militia that's not quite the same as the National Guard for, for listeners, sort of the, these are volunteer units of people that are fighting. Some of them wound up as partisans behind enemy lines, but they're, they're still uh, coordinating with the, the broader Ukrainian military. Still, that, that's, that's incredible. And like, the headlines, which are touting like these, this, this uh, unity and this support for Ukraine, 
So like, ah, yes, we can see how unified Rule of the West is uh, because we've given them 12 self-propelled towers. 12! 12! Like, uh, it, it, I, it's like, I don't, I don't know how to explain scale to the people writing these headlines where, I mean, Russia started this invasion in, in, in February with a operational force of about a hundred thousand men and probably tens of thousands of artillery tubes. And no one knows like the, 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 the longstanding, uh, as we were just discussing earlier, the longstanding Russian paranoiac impulse to like hoard things. They, they have, they have mothball arsenals of artillery going back to the first world war just in case. And so we can, we can beclown ourselves by making fun of them for like trotting out 1960s technology pulled out of mothballs and, and, and point to uh, photos of, of Russian uh, reservists that are in their 50s carrying bolt-action rifles in occupied parts of Ukraine. But at the end of the day, they have the guy there with the bolt-action rifle and the body armor uh, occupying part of another country. And they can just keep reinforcing their, their stockpiles with older and older equipment. And we just don't have the same ability. Like we, we don't have the financial prowess because we're already like likely in a recession. And if we're not in one currently, we, we probably will be imminently in the United States and this will affect global markets. Uh, so we don't have the money. We we're running out of, uh, stockpiles like elsewhere that we can afford to give away because then it turns into like, well, to what extent do we degrade our own rational self-interest? And like, so that would be crazy. Like in, in as much as like, I, I'm of the opinion that we ought to intervene. The fact that we would start degrading our national um, power projection capabilities to pursue a war that we haven't even declared. It, it, we start running into serious, like methodological, philosophical, and um, I, I repeat myself, strategic problems with that. It's, I don't think a series of problems that, that people are taking um, at, at face value. I, I think we still have this mirage, as you put it, of, of unity and the, the nuts and bolts of us, they just don't look good. Uh, the, the Ukrainians are on a, on a knife's edge, like the, they've lost the Battle of Severodonetsk. Uh, and I know it was a gamble, like Vladimir Putin put all of his reserves into that, but well, sometimes you roll the hard six and <laughs> if this was the television show Battlestar Galactica, the good guys would win that gamble. But in this case, it was Vladimir Putin. Yeah, the, uh, the I think it's I think it's really an open question. Like, who has time on their side? Like, I don't have a deep understanding of the depth of Russian reserves. Like, how long they can afford to carry on the way they have. Like, as as things currently stand, um, there's a member of the Ukrainian Parliament, I believe, who frankly said, like, neither side is winning at the moment, and uh, like. Like it's a coin toss like, as to who can, can like, afford to not win the longest. Um, it's the, I mean, the, the Russians have, it's, I've always understood, like, I've always heard they had just enormous stockpiles of war material because they just kept them in case they needed them someday. Um, and, like, the, the concern here is that, like, as I've often said, like, we've run this tape before. 
and that's something like we have a much you know, very short attention span here in the West. Like we struggle to remember what happened the day before yesterday, but we are we've already done this before. Like eight years ago, like he invaded Crimea, seized it, and supported two like independence movements in the Far East in Ukraine. And he was slapped with a round of sanctions for his trouble, and <laughs> to some extent excluded from the global community, but over time, like those restrictions fell away, like we lost interest, administrations changed, like we moved, like we went on with our lives. And that's something, like in that sense, Russia absolutely has time on its hands. Like our attention span in the West is very short. My, my concern is that we're going to lose interest, like we're going to start running out of things, like this the influx of Western arms and material western money will begin to ebb like the war will slow down just this grinding war of attrition in which neither side can really gain like a decisive advantage and as we've seen before like one or two administrations from now like Vladimir Putin or his successor will probably be able to play on the, the very short memory of the west and sort of sidles way back into something like good graces like convince us to participate in some sort of diplomatic structure that favors the Russian Federation or is more amenable to them. And he will, if he really wanted to, if he really wanted to, I mean, he could probably, like, if he had to, like, he could, all he'd have to do to play us like Harp is just push for a ceasefire as hard as he could. Like, just seize Lysychansk, like, the rest of Donetsk, like, lock down, like, those two oblasts or provinces, whatever you want to call them, and then just sue for like um, ceasefire, and then like lock the just lock down the, um, the the lines where they are, just like take time, take another eight years to catch his breath, as it were. Um, just like the again, like we've seen exactly how this plays out. Like if current events continue on their trajectory, because we tried this eight years ago and it didn't work. Um, we, I mean, Georgia is still in pieces. Yes. Like, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, as far as I know, are lost to them for good. Like, they don't have the ability to retake them themselves. Like, the West, the ceasefire that the EU negotiated with the Russian Federation was absurdly weak. Like, Georgia's in pieces. Like, this, this is something, I mean, this is something, like, the Russian Federation has done for a long, long time. Like, like they just habit of dismembering nations and then eating them slowly like we and we we, we tend to forget about we just kind of move on do other things like one of Vladimir Putin's advantages that he's been in power one way or another for so long that he doesn't have to worry about elections the way our political leadership such as it is, is has to worry about um, and that is one of his is one of the best cards he has to play and so far he's actually played it very very well and I think there's there's another point there too that we are very susceptible to any sort of Russian information campaign to reframe everything internationally as a domestic issue so <laughs> we I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the whole uh, 
Russia collusion 2016 angle and whatnot. But to use that as an example, we are highly susceptible to this. Uh, it, all we need is a very subtle push, a very small push. And now instead of the topic being uh, the fact that Russia has been engaged in a near decade long illegal war of aggression against its largest neighbor, who happens to be desperately trying to liberalize and, and, and westernize itself. Um, instead of that being the topic, it's which of the politicians uh, can I ascribe uh, blame to for this? So it then becomes an issue about like domestic politics. They're, they're very easily able to rely on our sort of current tribal nonsense instinct to then make everything a referendum on internal politics as opposed to international affairs, which I think is exacerbated or maybe enabled or, or even caused by our like lack of a, a national strategy ever since the end of the Cold War. Like the 1990s hit and that was that was it. We were done. We we didn't reach the end of history. We reached right. yeah, Francis Fukuyama, end of history. Like we got there. Like they have very little patience for that argument. Uh, we've been living in a, a golden age and it is ending. Like that golden age is is ending. It is coming to a close and we are in the twilight of it. And because the United States is so affluent and geographically isolated and well insulated through natural resources and defended by the two most powerful strategists in American history, we have Admiral Pacific and General Atlantic mm -hmm. to keep most of our, our most uh, contentious uh, adversaries at bay. We are in a position where we're, we're, we're well off enough that we can afford or we think we can afford to distract ourselves with these petty internal bickering fests as opposed to paying attention to what's actually happening outside of our borders and the, the broader implications of what happens uh, if despots uh, start chipping away at the West. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, this, uh, to kind of draw all that together, like, I think the, the long and the short of it really is that like, we can't, the, like if the war is a coin toss at this point, like, I, I don't think, I don't think we can comfortably say that we have time on our side. I don't think we can afford to carry on as we have with any guarantee of like a more defensible outcome. Like we can't keep spending money the way we have. We can't keep sending arms the way we have. I think realistically, like the, I think the most uh, humane, compassionate, and sensible option is simply to be there ourselves and that leads straight into the that runs straight into the 800 pound gorilla in the room i think this is the argument that probably persuades most people that we cannot risk like a direct armed confrontation with the russian federation because they are a nuclear power maybe the largest on earth um and i, I that that argument is trotted out quite a lot um i have never heard any one in public, like, I counter it, unfortunately. Um, I, I think it is worth lingering on that, because that is, I think it, it's wrong for a variety of reasons. Like, it, like, nobody should be, to take a cavalier view of, like, a, the possibility of an armed confrontation between the United States of America and the Russian Federation. Like, the, the potential there, certainly, I mean, the way it could ramify, certainly is horrific. Like, the potential consequences are horrifying. 
problem, I mean, there are, one of the problems is that like, philosophically, morally, like we're, we're effectively saying that we, we are only committed to our principles unless we actually have to fight for them. We believe that That's exactly people right. deserve to be free unless we run the risk of people dying to fight for it or to, to guarantee it. And I, I don't see what use our principles really are, or the principles we claim to be committed to, like if we aren't willing to actually fight for them. And like the purely as a practical matter, like if you aren't persuaded by the moral argument that it's it's the right thing to do if you believe that free people deserve to be free and that it's it's the right thing to do is to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Like if you aren't persuaded by the moral argument, like there's there's the practical one, like this the, the precedent that you establish seems to be that if that any nuclear power is free to dispose of their neighbors like however they wish. No, I think I think that's right, and I, I sort of thought this would be the uh, the principal thesis of, of the the podcast today. So I'm glad I'm glad we did get here before we talk about though. I just do I want to make a a very explicit point because I want to I want to cut this argument off before somebody um, articulates it, which is uh, you're just a bunch of warmongers because you want to declare war and, and, and fight the Russians, and I can't see it right now, but Ryan's shaking his head no. There's a there's a really important difference here. I don't want this. I recognize that this is within the moral, philosophical, and strategic frameworks that I adhere to. I think this is the only appropriate course of action. That doesn't mean it's good. War is war is terrible. War is hideous. Like huge numbers of people die. Most of them innocent, but the cost of our inaction right now is that there is still a war going on and it is a war in which the good guys are losing. It is a war in which the, the largest country in Europe that wanted to liberalize and westernize, that was the largest competitor to totalitarian sales of grain and energy is being dismembered. Uh, it's people are being slaughtered. It, it, there is increasing evidence that there is a, uh, state-sanctioned, widespread program of uh, intentional uh, depopulation. And some of this is through murder, and some of this is through uh, incarceration, and some of this is through uh, incentivizing the sort of uh, refugee crisis that Russia was able to capitalize on in, in Syria in order to destabilize the West. That cannot be allowed to happen. And we like the, it, I find it, it, it bitterly ironic that in the wake of World War II, we looked at what was happening with the Holocaust and, and collectively the entire West said never again. Unless, hmm. unless it's, unless there's nukes involved. And like, this is even against like the American tradition, just a few like less than a hundred years ago, just a few decades back, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and and that was very high profile. There were probably several other incidents that were similar in in potential consequence, but much lower profile, in which we said no, like we are not going to tolerate this particular action, and we're willing to go to the mat over it, and we were eventually able to like out maneuver uh, things in a way that was particularly delicate and uh, avert global thermonuclear catastrophe, etc. But I would argue that like the 
the positioning of missiles in Cuba, which was a Soviet ally, isn't the same as watching a belligerent uh, authoritarian state invade and destroy a free country. I, I think that it's worth highlighting that like the argument like, oh, well, y'all are just a bunch of warmongers and you just want war and everything. It misses the point. It is accepting what I, I think that we've come to recognize is like the appropriate response. And it's regrettable. It's awful. I would prefer that this not be the case. Uh, but by attempting to have our cake and eat it too, where we're not going it, to, it's so tiresome. It's like politicians saying this is a time of war. Really? Like member of Congress talking about this being a time of war. And as a result, people should do what you want. Declare it. Like have, have some conviction. If you genuinely believe that this thing is, is uh, the sort of existential crisis that your campaign fundraising ads uh, claim that it is, then vote on it. Vote to, to vote to declare war right now today. That would be the honest, it's especially like, again, trying to have our cake and eat it too. We refuse to declare war. We then claim that there is a war. So we, we definitely want there to be a war, but we don't want to declare one and we don't want to put ourselves in danger. Uh, also, it would be super duper unfair if uh, Russia were to retaliate against us for sending weapons in. And by our our own standards within like the law of war as recognized by the, the military of the United States, what we are doing counts us as a belligerent nation. But we, we don't want to go through the formalities and the inherent risk of making it official. We, we want to have this sort of bizarre twilight arena in which we get all the benefits of air quotes wartime without any of the costs of actually declaring war or, or anything along those lines. I think that is um, ruinous. I think that is caustic to the system of government that we have. Uh, I also think that it guarantees... Uh, the end state that we're end state's the wrong word. It guarantees the, the status quo that we're in right now in which nobody's winning and it is a coin toss as to who runs out of steam first. I think that is, that is disastrous. So to that point, um, in my opinion, the appropriate move in order to guarantee or at least genuinely fight for the sort of outcome that we all think is appropriate here would be direct military involvement. Uh, and, Finally, getting back to what you mentioned, like the, the idea that uh, we shouldn't because because nukes has no limiting principle. And as someone who I, I try to be upfront about the the, the, the sort of philosophical dogmas uh, that I have, like I'm of the opinion that you need to be able to identify limiting principles for anything. And the idea that we won't get engaged as long as the bad guy has nukes doesn't have a limiting principle. Yeah, uh, just off the other thought, I, I think it's precisely because of our compassion for these people that we are obligated to intervene militarily. I think it's, in, I take the view that like it is the surest way to end the fighting like as quickly as possible because I don't want to see like Ukraine. I prefer to say I don't want to see Ukrainians continue to die any more than I want to see like nineteen-year-old Russian kids dying for no reason satisfy the ambitions of their increasingly authoritarian autocratic ruler. Like, I don't want to see civilians displaced. I think the, the surest way to prevent all of those things is to intervene militarily directly to end the conflict like in, decisively and quickly like in Ukraine's favor today. And I, it's certainly not. It would be nice if we could talk our way out of it, but I think 
history has proven time and again, we can't, we can't talk our way out of it, we can't spend our way out of it. I think like sooner or later, like we have to actually do something about it. I mean, this, this is the whole point of the North Atlantic Treaty. Like it was intended as a check on Russian expansion. And now like 70 years later, like the time has come to pony up the goods. And so far we aren't willing to do that. No, I think that's, that's very well said. I, I can't help but wonder if like part of our collective like NATO reticence in this and part of like the motivation for Putin deciding like, yes, now is the time has to come from the fact that the United States failed in our commitment to NATO. Like we, we made a big deal of bemoaning the fact that large numbers of prominent NATO members weren't meeting their obligatory um, contributions, which I think is correct. But then as the only country in history to ever invoke Article 5, after the Al-Qaeda terrorists uh, suborned by the Taliban used the resources of the Afghan state to launch a uh, unprovoked offensive uh, terrorist attack against the United States, we said, no, we're invoking Article 5 and all of NATO is coming down on you. We got bored. We got tired of it. We, we got sick of it. We, we lost interest and we took our ball and went home. And I, I have to think that that simultaneously uh, told the Russians, I don't think that they're serious about this. I also think it told the other members of NATO, um, I don't necessarily know that our heavy is particularly well invested in this either. So why should we stick our necks out? And so the, I think the rock stars and all of this have been the, the countries in Eastern Europe, the Visegrad, Visegrad group, et cetera, Poland, the Baltic states. Um, but NATO itself has been lackluster, I, I think. I, it, it's worth, like, the, the whole idea of um, Sweden and Finland joining NATO, I think, all to the good. More countries that, that uh, we can add to the, to the collective defense number. But now we have Turkey saying, oh, well, actually, we don't want to play. We would have, prefer to have our own interests um, taken care of first. And I, I think that this is going to be a continuing and exacerbating problem. I think that the, the fact that Turkey does have its own independent interests, which are not compatible with the West, which are not compatible with NATO, and which in some ways are actually kind of sympathetic to Russia. Uh, I think that's going to be a problem. I think that at a certain point, when it starts getting cold this winter in Germany, uh, the Germans are going to have a really hard choice to make. Because previously, the, the Germans spent the last several decades, uh, as, as we've discussed before, not making any choices. They, they had their national defense subsidized by the United States, uh, and they were able to get their energy nice and cheap to make their Green Party look really good because they just bought it from the Russians. And now they're going to have a choice to make. Do you want the cheap energy? Or uh, do you want the benefits of collective Western defense? And I don't think that's a, a guaranteed like win in the Western civilization category. I think that's going to be a serious problem because at a certain point, Germany is a democratic institution. And when you got a whole bunch of people that are going bankrupt and they can't pay their heating bills and they might be freezing to death in their apartments, um, they're going to vote <laughs> and they're, they're going to vote for things that we probably aren't going to like very much. Uh, and if you thought that Brexit was a tectonic shift, just, just wait for Germany to decide that it's not going to do anything about collective defense in, in NATO. And if, if we don't decide right now, like we're going to involve ourselves and end this thing, we're looking at a near inevitable series of, uh, 
really, really uh, shocking challenges to the coherence of the Western alliance. Yeah. Um, actually, as a side note, like Turkey is actually a textbook example of why I would be skeptical of NATO expansion generally. Like, <laughs> just the, yeah. I think if you I think you should be choosy about who your friends are. Like you, I understand they have a very valuable piece of real estate, and as I understand, like decades ago, their uh, political and philosophical character of the nation was somewhat different. Um, as I understand, their president uh, Erdogan's uh, uh, political party has more Islamist leanings than his predecessors did. Um, so it's possible to believe Turkey is a little bit different back then, but. Nonetheless, I think there is, I mean, just as a practical matter, like, the larger a group you have, the harder it's going to be to find consensus on anything. I think you should be extremely choosy about, like, who you get into NATO, for example. Um, but, no, like, this, I think the, for one thing, like, people always, just, it's worth noting, people always speak as though, like, nuclear, a nuclear exchange is a foregone conclusion. Not necessarily convinced this case. I, I don't know why they've never shown me their work. Like I don't know why they just assume that if we engage in direct like armed confrontation with the Russians, like it will end in a nuclear exchange of some kind. Like everybody just accepts that, and the conversation stops. Unfortunately, um, but like, I think broadly speaking, like, I think we yes, like the I think the, the way to lose the fewest number of people is to like intervene now and like to stop it like as quickly as possible just to, to help Ukrainians win like we've so far we've spent years just helping them not to lose basically I think we need to we need to make a choice like either admit that we don't actually stand for the principles we claim to champion or like go all in like help them like commit to helping them win quickly decisively stop Ukrainians from dying and Russians for that matter and just because that isn't good for anyone I mean, just, I mean the, the, the ramifications globally are very likely going to be extremely severe um, so I think the I don't know what else I can say like on to, to the moral point I think like the the answer I, I desperately wanted to hear for staying in Afghanistan never did from any of our elected leadership such as it is that was the right thing here, I think standing with the Ukrainians is the right thing to do. Like, I think at some point you have to agree that like your principles matter more than like your principles matter more than the potential negative ramifications. Like, I think your principles are more important than success or failure. Like, you should do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you're sure you'll win. As concerns the practical argument, like. It just it again like we're all we're doing is signaling to every tin pot dictator on earth that they should just arm themselves with nuclear weapons as quickly as possible all we're doing is encouraging their nuclear ambitions because mm -hmm. we have stated repeatedly and publicly ad nauseum that we won't intervene because of the risk of a nuclear exchange and i have to imagine i'm straying to the realm of speculation but i have to imagine that iran attention to like this stand position that we've eked out for ourselves here. 
No, I, I think that's completely right. Um, I think that's all very well said. And I, I, we've gone for about an hour now. I think we should probably start wrapping. But the, the last point I do want to emphasize is if our commitment is Ukraine is a country that deserves to be free and that we are going to support the government of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine in uh, resisting Russian uh, imperialist uh, invasion, occupation, and, and killing. Um, and we view the potential hazard of direct involvement is it's possible the Russians may respond with nuclear weapons. I think there is a, a conspicuous laziness in identifying that as a potential hazard because that's not the end of the, the conversation. The, the conversation would then continue. And here's how I propose that we would address that. Here's how we would outmaneuver that particular threat. This is this is the thing that I think we would need to do in order to reduce that hazard, in order to counter that risk. Uh, maybe that's dusting off the Star Wars, as we just talked about last night. We have an actual like diff, like uh, branch of the military which is now intended for space operations. Yeah. Uh, we could dust off the old Star Wars program, look at ways to revamp that, look at ways to counter these things. Uh, the Navy is in the process of fielding prototype directed energy weapons that are designed to shoot down uh, missiles of various types. And I don't think it was a coincidence that Russia touted its delivery of a hypersonic uh, missile during this when they didn't really need to. Uh, I think they were trying to scare us, and I think it's working. And it, it should be the case that we look at what they're capable of doing and determining, like, okay, if they decide they're going to go nuclear, here's how we're going to either limit the potential negative out outcomes or prevent them from doing it in the first place. And instead, this is a convenient excuse because it's very sympathetic, and I, I think a lot of people are, are justifiably and rightly afraid of a nuclear exchange because we spent a long time, ever since the end of the Cold War, not having to worry about duck and cover drills or anything. Uh, and I think that people want to put their heads back in the sand. I think they really do because they don't want to, air quotes, go back to a world in which that might be the case. Well, plot twist, or I guess newsflash, that world never truly went away. Like the, the real world exists and in it there are predatory people and regimes. And the idea that we can just ignore them because our quality of life is good has the potential negative outcome, which I think we're beginning to see right now, that we are willing to tolerate them in order to keep our quality of life good. I, I think that this has been a big chunk of how uh, the Communist Party of China has been able to insinuate its way into the inner workings of American culture. I think that's negative because no one wants to make them angry because we could make a lot of money over there. And I think that's a, that's a serious problem. Again, this is another area where I part company with our libertarian friends is that um, Free markets do not necessarily make free people. Instead, the, the bad ideas can often uh, make free people less free. Hong Kong. Um, so I, I think that people look at, like, well, we don't want a nuclear exchange, and then use that as a way to just shuffle out of the room before more serious strategic thinkers can actually rebut that point. I think it's a convenient place for them to, to end the conversation artificially. No, that that's a point worth I think highlighting and underlining. Like, it, it's, you're certainly correct. Like, instead of simply throwing up our hands and saying that, well, we wish we could do more to help Ukraine, we can't because of Russia's nuclear arsenal. I think the the correct response is to 
I think the only more like defensible response is to take the view that like, we have to help the Ukraine. Like, how do we do it? Like, how do we how do we negate like the Russian nuclear advantage? Or if you want to characterize it that way, like, how do we? This is the thing that needs to be done. How do we do it? I think that's completely right. Uh, so that's been uh, hour and twelve minutes of of this particular topic. I think we've addressed a lot of the incomplete or faulty arguments on this. This has been, this has been great. Um, I mean, I enjoy doing sort of a two person podcast, but what you, is this your first time podcasting, Ryan? Yeah, I guess so. So yeah, this is, this has been good. We'll, we'll probably do more of these, uh, moving forward. Um, any last thoughts for our five listeners or however many people actually subscribe to this thing? Ukraine's the war in Ukraine is an enormous topic. There's there's a lot to unpack. There it was hard to know where to start, really. Um, so I think the logical starting jumping off point for a discussion is to offer up a correct sum of what I've seen, what I would view as very poor thinking on the on the matter. Like there's been quite a lot of that among the tender hedging in the past four months and for really years leading up to it, not that many people paid attention to it before February 24th. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the logical place to start was just to address some of the poor arguments made for the current course we're trying to chart through this mess. Um, and I'm sure that will be ample fodder for future discussion later. I think that's right. Um... I think that'll I think that'll wrap us up, and I think that's a good sort of capstone to put at the end of it. So uh, thank you all for listening. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, Ryan and I have been talking about doing this for a couple of weeks now, and we, we finally found a mutual day, and it's a beautiful one as well. It is uh, the 26th of June as we're recording this. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's 81 degrees. It is bright blue skies, and up in our neck of the woods in the Puget Sound area, this is not common. So uh, everything lined up just right. Glad to have everyone along, and uh, until next time, this has been the Low Left Podcast.